Stay there for a minute. Okay, we by no means have addressed all of the questions Jesus asks, and uh, it's a worthy study. You might want to continue it on your own. Um, There's some very significant questions that we haven't even looked at, Uh, but I thought uh, in conclusion I'd uh, take a little time and look at this one in Luke 1318, if someone would get that for me, uh, Daniel. Then I need somebody to get Matthew 423, uh, Dennis, Luke 1318 to 19, Lucas, Mark 430 to 32, Matthias, Matthias, I knew that. Uh, And let's hold it there for a moment. And so uh, last week, what did we look at last week? Did I not choose you and one of you was a devil? And so uh, we looked into a little bit of the issue of Calvinism and uh, some of the error that's uh, at the base of that. Uh, We looked into the human will. And so this week uh, I want to conclude with uh, uh, the question that Jesus asks here in Luke 13, 18. Go ahead and read that for us. Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? This is a different question than what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Breathe in deeply. (laughs) Breathe out deeply. Get the blood circulating, oxygen moving to the brain. What is the kingdom of God? Dennis. Uh, in the earth, it's where God rules. It's his will, going, will and purpose going forth in the earth. It's God's will and purpose going forth in the earth. Anybody want to add to that? We have, Pastor Mitchell taught a class on the kingdom of God some years ago, and it's been a reference point for me through the years, and many of you would remember it. You were here for it. And then he has alluded to a very concise definition that that, that study developed. It's a simple statement. The kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. Okay, the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. That's half of it. And that aligns with what Dennis said. Al. Okay, it involves the church. It certainly isn't limited to the church, I don't think. But it's, uh, uh, it definitely does involve the church. Dan. It's the dominion of God, the presence of God, the power of God. But also, I had a guy call me just a few days ago that I went to high school with. And he's got a wisdom, got saved. Very encouraging. So what is the kingdom of God? 
kingdom of God is where the will of God is known and obeyed. Okay? That's, that's the easiest definition and the most and, uh, uh, concise definition that I can think of. The kingdom of God is where the will of God, the will of God, is known and obeyed. So that's the definition. That's a working definition. But Jesus isn't asking what is the kingdom of God. He's asking what's it like. And there's, there's quite a difference there. What's the kingdom of God like? You had a hard time with what it is. What's it like? Huh? It's like all the parables Jesus talked about. <laughs> Which is exactly what we're going to look at. But that doesn't help me. What is the kingdom of God like? And Jeff, why are you sitting on that side? Are you, are you trying to throw me? Are you, is this a deliberate ploy? Okay. <laughs> Mark. Okay, so Mark says it's, it's about accountability. What's it like? Hopefully you're in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where the will of God is known and obeyed. Hopefully you know the will of God and you're obeying it. But what's it like? What's it like being there? What's it like in the kingdom? Okay, I'm outside the kingdom. I, I've never been in the kingdom. What's the kingdom of God like? Carol. Okay, very good. We're going to look at that parable. She, she goes to the, uh, it's like a grain of mustard seed. And it grows and it gets bigger and it's enlargement. This kind of ties into what Dan was saying. Uh, he wasn't just telling us what it is, but he was explaining a little bit of what it was like. He's talking about all these people being saved and added to the kingdom. Multiplication. Woody. Okay, very good. He says it's like the military, chain of command, order, discipline, uh, uh, expectation and commitment. Those are very, very good analogies. And, okay, I'm trying to, I'm a visitor. I'm trying to figure out, well, what what are these Potter's House doorknobs all about? Uh, I don't don't understand what what this cult is. And so so what are you guys? And we say, well, we're part of the kingdom of God. And uh, and here's a good description. Here's something I can get a handle on a little bit. Juanita. Very good. She says it's a peace like nothing else can give you, which may perhaps be a product of the kingdom of God, but it's also descriptive. Daniel.
Okay, so the kingdom of God is about dominion and uh, the power over darkness instead of darkness having rule over you. Casey. Okay, so the kingdom of God is like a sovereign nation and there are governing governments and there are rules and there are responsibilities and there are rewards and there are privileges that all tie into this. Very good. Uh, Don. It's like a fishing operation search and rescue operation. It's like a fishing operation and like a search and rescue operation. Okay, very good. Dennis. Okay, it, it revolves around the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the work of the gospel. Okay, Carol. It's also like a famine where God is the Father God and there's a supernatural wealth and you are born from above by your heavenly Father and there's a unit and a love between the brethren that is supernatural, not like anything else on the planet. Okay, it's like a family where you have a father, you have the patriarch of the family. And when you think about these different illustrations, the military, the sovereign nation, the family, all of them have very common features of, of uh, hierarchy, of discipline, of rule. Uh, and so it all fits well with the definition the kingdom of God is where the will of God is known and obeyed. Okay? And so all of these are very descriptive. Now, we're going to look at several parables that Jesus spoke that, where he's trying to tell us what the kingdom of God is like. And it gives us some insight into what it's like to live in the kingdom. And uh, these, again, are only a few of the possibilities. There are a great number of parables, and Jeff actually alluded to this, uh, that uh, the kingdom of God is like the parables that Jesus spoke, because many of the parables Jesus prefaced by saying the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. And so again and again, he was trying to inform us of what it's like to be a Christian and to live in this relationship with God where you can hear His voice, where you can know His will, and you can walk in obedience and the ensuing blessing that comes on that from our lives. So let's look at this first one, Matthew uh, 4.23. Oh, now, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Uh, we actually should have gotten that scripture a little bit earlier. We're past that, so uh, my apologies to whoever I assigned that to. Let's get Luke 13.18 and 19. And uh, let's hear that. Then he said, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Okay, and then I want to compare it with Mark 4, 30 and 32. Which is said, what shall we like in the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we see? Shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it, which when it is sown in the ground, is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes a greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches, so all the birds of the air may nest under shade. Okay, and so 
these are very, very similar parables. The language is a little bit different at the conclusion of them. The first one says that the birds come and uh, 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 land in its branches. The second one says the birds come and nest under its branches. And uh, so there's, there's. Uh, you may think that I'm nitpicking, but uh, there, are, I believe this indicates two possible interpretations. And through the years, as I've looked into this and heard various sermons on this, read on it, uh, there are indeed uh, two different approaches uh, to what Jesus has in mind that I think are both equally valid. Uh, but let's first look at the things that are similar in both of these uh, par- uh, statements of this parable. Uh, the first is, as uh, Carol said, we start with the smallest of seeds. We start with something that is completely insignificant. The kingdom of God uh, always starts uh, uh, much smaller than you can imagine. Okay, Americans have a hard time coming to grips with this because we believe big is good and, and bigger is better. And so uh, this is the land of supersize, which leads to supersized bellies. This is the land of SUVs. This is the land of skyscrapers. This is the land of the megachurch. And uh, we measure success by megachurch standards. Uh, We are into big global corporation. Uh, We believe in big. We're into big. We measure the value of something by how much buzz it generates and how much attention and how many people it grabs. And so this this, uh, uh, is the way Americans think culturally. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is the exact opposite of this, that its inception is virtually unnoticeable. That when the kingdom of God begins to make its impact, it's not with this huge splash. It's one baby born in a manger somewhere. It's a carpenter and 12 men. That's, can you believe that Christianity started with a carpenter and 12 peasants? There wasn't one ruling figure, there wasn't one celebrity, there wasn't one king, there wasn't, there wasn't anybody who could make a social impact in human terms. By the way this world functions, by the way the world uh, uh, gives credibility. You know, it's amazing to me the people that get credibility. It astonishes me. The people that uh, uh, are supposedly credible and their lifestyles are horrifying... They're pedophiles, they're child molesters, they're, they're all kinds of things, but they're celebrities. And so therefore they're credible. And no one asks, is anything this man saying true? They just say, well, he must be true because he's a celebrity. He's known. He has, uh, he has the ear of people. And so the, the most insane things uh, are spewed forth and... Uh, You can't even fathom where it all comes from. And so this world gives all kinds of credibility to people that have no credibility. And yet here are people that the world would have completely dismissed. These peasants, Jesus, a carpenter. In fact, Jesus ran into this again and again. Aren't you the son of Joseph and Mary? Aren't you just a carpenter? Where did you get all this intellect and insight? Where did you get all this knowledge and wisdom? And they had a hard time uh, uh, accepting it coming from someone so lowly on the food chain. Think about this. How on earth can Corey and Krista Pratt make an impact in Las Vegas, Nevada? Here are two kids that grew up in Podunk Junction, Prescott. They are stepping in to a city... That is uh, absolutely phenomenal. We sent them up there with a kazoo-sized PA. 
And we said, go, take the city. (laughs) And they're competing with places where just the marquee, to run the marquee costs more money than their whole year's budget. You go up to Las Vegas and everywhere you look are, uh, I mean, I was stunned. It had been probably 10 years since I'd been there. I went up there to do a discipleship class in Duane's church. And uh, everything is full motion video. And uh, the place is just insane. It is the most distracting place on planet Earth. And we send Corey and Chris up there and say, go get them. And they're stupid enough to go. They don't go, are you out of your mind? They go, yeah, let's go get them. This is incredible. And this is the way we have launched hundreds of couples. It, It doesn't work in the mind. How can we hope that these two little people can make an impact in that city? But that is the kingdom of God. That's the way the kingdom of God functions. And we have seen it again and again. We have seen people, uh, you know, the, the, the people that we send out have such lowly backgrounds. And the people we've worked with for years have come in from such disparate and desperate circumstances. And yet God's able to take these people and raise them up. And Jesus says it's like this little tiny mustard seed that is so insignificant... But when it's run its course, it's a tree, which is a bit of a, an exaggerated statement because mustard plants don't grow into trees. They're just little bushes. They're very low. They're, they're, they're not the kind of thing that, that uh, birds build nests under because uh, they, they don't afford all that much shade or protection in the natural But what Jesus is talking about is a supernatural exponential growth that begins to come out of this mustard seed. This is a mutant plant that is supernaturally enlarged and it exceeds all human expectation. No one plants a mustard seed expecting a tree. If they do, they're they're out of their mind. But... What Jesus is getting at is when the kingdom of God kicks in, the the yield is bigger than any human can possibly understand or lay claim to or lay credit to and say, look what I have done. Because when it's all said and done, that was supernatural. And any idiot knows that a mustard seed never gets that big. And for it to get that big had to be God. This is something fascinating to me. When men have success, the first thing they do is lay their hand on it. And they touch the glory of God and they say, this is me. And Jesus said, it couldn't possibly be you. You're just a little tiny thing. And there's no way in the world you could produce this. The only way that this could happen is by the power of God. What you're seeing is not the result of Pastor Wayman Mitchell or Pastor Scott Lamb. You're seeing the result of the kingdom of God. It's absolute folly to think that Pastor Mitchell could have orchestrated this fellowship. He's a great man. I love him. He's brilliant, but he ain't that brilliant. (laughs) And uh, I'm telling you right now that he'd be the first to tell you that he's as amazed as anyone else that this fellowship even exists. And this fellowship didn't come into being 
by design. Pastor Mitchell came to nurse a wounded church back to health. That was his, that's what he expected. He wanted God to do a great thing. He wanted revival, but he had no idea that he would be traveling around the world preaching in thousands of churches, making impact upon thousands of lives. This This is beyond the scope of what could feasibly happen. And yet here it is, because of something that God did, because God kicked this in. This is what the kingdom of God is like. So the kingdom of God uh, is this uh, wonderful plant. Now, where the, the, dis, uh, the different interpretations of this parable come into play is when you begin to discuss the birds that land here. And this in and of itself gives us insight into the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God, many people think, as Juanita said, the kingdom of God is peace. It is. When you're in the kingdom of God, you have great peace. But I want to tell you something. The kingdom of God is war. And there's wonderful peace that passes understanding when you are touched by the love of Christ and when you're living according to the will of God. But the overarching kingdom of God is not at peace. And I don't know if it ever will be. Uh, Perhaps, uh, you know, we've got the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ where things uh, seem to be on an even keel. Uh, And then the devil rises up again. And so then he's dealt with again, but who knows what happens after that? We have some vague uh, insights into some new earth and new heavens and things are going to get rearranged. But does that mean uh, there's never going to be war in the heavenlies again? I don't, I don't know. The, the dynamics that seem to have always revolved around the kingdom of God speak of war. And this comes into this issue of the birds. Okay? Alfred Hitchcock and company. And so... The birds have been interpreted two ways. The text in Mark where it pictures these little birds coming in and building their nests under the shade and the protection of the tree is a a fairly benign picture. And uh, it it suggests bliss and it, it suggests the attractive quality of the kingdom of God. And these birds are drawn to this. They're drawn to a place of provision. They're drawn to a place of protection. And there's a a, a domestic quality that's involved in the kingdom of God in Mark's picture. It seems very benign there, very clear. Uh, In the Luke version, uh, where it speaks of the birds of the air, there's a very... uh, Well, let me me continue in Mark for just a second. Actually, it's the same word that's used in both. And so it's the word uranos. And uh, this is Strong's definition. It comes to the idea of elevation, the sky... By extension, heaven as the abode of God. By implication, happiness, power, eternity. And specifically, the gospel of Christianity. And so, uh, this, the birds of the air has this quality of uh, uh, birds coming into the blessing of the kingdom. Uh, happiness, power, blessing, eternity. That's what's implied by this word, the birds of the air. We do, however, have some other scriptures that begin to show us a different side to the fowls or the birds of the air. Let's have Genesis 15, 10 to 11. Uh, Aaron, Matthew 13, 3 and 4. Casey, Isaiah 18, 5 and 6. Uh, Andrew, Deuteronomy 28, 26. Mike and Jeff, get me Revelations 2, 18. So there's another dimension here that is worth considering. Genesis 15. 10 and 11.
Okay, so uh, we're, we're talking here about uh, Abraham and his sacrifice. And it says that after he laid out the pieces of the sacrifice for a covenant between him and God, uh, the fowl of the air began to swoop in on it and try to carry it away and try to destroy this covenant between Abraham and God. Okay, And so he had to stand guard over this sacrifice uh, and drive off uh, the birds or the fowl of the air. Matthew 13, 3 and 4. Okay, here's the gospel going forth, and the birds in this case uh, are hostile to the gospel. And they are coming and they're snatching away the seed and preventing the kingdom of God from going forward. Uh, Isaiah 18, 5 and 6. Okay, before the harvest, when the branches are blooming, when the fruit is ready, when everything is ripe and it looks like it's just ready to bring forth the fruition of labor, he will cut off the branches uh, and he'll prune off the sprigs. Go on. And it will be left together for the birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth and the birds of prey will summer on this. Here's, again, a picture of an aborted harvest and uh, the felons that are involved. This is an act of God's judgment. But there's also this element of as soon as God moves on this and judges Israel, then the birds of prey come in and they start to devour the harvest. Deuteronomy 28, 26. Your carcasses will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And finally, Revelations 2.18. I've got to get an editor for these notes. <laughs> okay, I can't. Again, it, it indicated. I don't remember where I got it, but it's somewhere in there. Maybe twelve eighteen. Try twelve eighteen. It's not twenty. Try twelve. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> and so. Uh, so what we have is this, this other side of the nature of these birds that is, that plays into, uh, you got something, Casey? Yes, 1921. Oh, yeah, it sounds just like 1218. <laughs> That's a nice verse. This wasn't the one I was looking for, but. <laughs> and so, uh, so we have this, Almost carnivorous attribute to these birds. Okay. There's nothing, there's nothing in this particular context that we've looked at in Luke that would indicate that Jesus is leaning in either specific direction 
as to the birds, as to the nature of birds. It does not have the same domestic implications. They're not finding a nice place to nest. They've come and they've landed on the branches. This could imply lots of different things. But there, there is, in Matthew 13, and we're not going to go there right now, but contextually, there's uh, uh, some statements that Jesus makes that surrounds this parable, and they all have to do with this negative edge that we're going to look at in a minute. This negative edge in the kingdom, this contrast between what God is working on and accomplishing and what the devil is aborting. This comes through again and again to the point that this particular parable actually lends itself to either interpretation. You can go either way with this. And and both sides of the kingdom of God are true. We have to understand that the kingdom of God has a winsomeness about it. It has an attractiveness about it that will draw people and there will be growth. This is a reality. But to limit your understanding of the kingdom of God to this wonderful, blissful experience is to set yourself up for real disappointment. Because in the kingdom of God, it's very, very clear that things get real dicey. And things get real. There's lots of conflict and lots of opposition that you have to work yourself through. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's not this wonderful, peaceful place. You know, I I grew up in the Catholic Church and they had all these uh, stained glass windows with beatific saints. And and they're all smiling and they they all look really like stoned and real happy with life. And the weird thing about it is some of them like are pierced through with arrows and stuff and they're just happy. You know, if I ever get shot with an arrow, I don't think I'll be smiling. There's this, there's a tension in the kingdom of God that you and I have to come to grips with, Dennis. Thank you. 18-2. It's that dyslexia thing. And so it's not 218, it's 18-2. And he says that Babylon has been uh, made a habitation of demons and all the fowl of the earth. Interesting statement. A, a habitation of demons and all the fowl of the earth. All of the various prophetic scriptures that we looked at are all symbolic. They're all using metaphor as the scriptures often do. And so there's a direct connection that is made throughout scriptures between the fowl of the air and demonic opposition to the kingdom of God. And I'm glad you found that verse because it's a very clear link. Revelations 18.2. Okay. And so let's hold that thought in mind and look at another uh, scripture, the next parable that Jesus tells in this flow of... Uh, what's the kingdom of God like? Let's have somebody get me Luke 13, 20 and 21. Eric, Matthew 5, 13. Dave, Steve, this is my front row of readers here. Uh, Matthew 5, 13. No, I gave that to somebody else. You uh, get me Philippians 1, 6. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8. Uh, Galatians 5, 7, and not, 7 to 9. And Matthew 5, 13. Yeah, I want it again. Aaron. Then uh, Matthew 13, 24, and 30, Rod. Uh, Jake, if you'll get me Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Okay, so out of this mustard seed, Jesus goes directly to this next parable. Luke 13, 20, and 21. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, and the whole was leaven. 
Okay, to what will I liken the kingdom of God? It is like unto a woman who took uh, three measures of meal and uh, put leaven in it, and then the whole was leavened by that. Okay, so again, we're talking about an almost invisible permeation. We're talking about the addition of a very small quantity. Anybody who's ever done any baking or seen anybody do any baking has seen the results of leaven in a little bit of dough. You just take a little bit of that, mix it in, leave it set, and after a while the whole of the bread begins to rise as a consequence of that leaven's existence. And so uh, it's very clear that we're talking about a permeating influence. Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You are the salt of the earth. Okay? And so again, this is a permeation. This is the kingdom of God changing the flavor of its environment. This is uh, something that's invisible, but it's happening behind the scenes. Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will, continue, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul, speaking of God working in the human nature, says we're confident that he who has begun a good thing in you will finish it. That there's an active process, that this thing is permeating your life and it's working in you to produce an expected end and so uh, we're talking about the kingdom of God having a positive influence in society in culture we're talking about the kingdom of God making a difference in an individual's life uh, that God invisibly moves Jesus speaking to Nicodemus uh, says uh, you've got to be born again well how can I be born again you've got to be born of the spirit uh, I don't understand this well uh, this has to do with the Spirit of God moving in ways that bring forth consequence. You don't see where the wind comes from. Uh, you can't uh, see the wind, but you can see what it produces. And so all of this is this concept of the kingdom working invisibly, but permeating and producing a good and producing a positive uh, effect in society and in our lives. But again, this could be interpreted another way because leaven scripturally is very often associated with something that's very negative. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, which is something I've always wanted to be is a new lump. And so purge out the leaven so that you can be a new lump, uh, that you will be truly unleavened. Very interesting statement. He's likening it all back to the Passover, where the uh, Passover bread was made without leaven. And uh, not only was it to be made without leaven, but before it was to be made, the house was to be swept clean uh, so there'd be no trace of leaven. Leaven in this context is viewed as something very negative and contrary to the kingdom. Go ahead. Therefore, let us keep peace, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and weakness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, keep the feast not with the leaven of malice and carnality, but to keep it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, Galatians 5, 7 to 9. You ran well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? You ran well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
This persuasion does not come from him who called you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now he's talking about false doctrine that's being sown into the Galatian fellowship, uh, the Judaizers and their influence. And so he's dealing here with a negative influence. Uh, Matthew 5.13 again. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown onto the dunghill and to be tread underfoot. Okay, this permeating positive influence now has become a negative influence. Do you know why they so, uh, throw salt on dung? Anybody know? Eleanor. It kills germs, kills more than that. Nothing will grow. It sterilizes it. Manure is a fertilizer. Salt sterilizes it. And so this salt that was supposed to be life-producing, bringing forth good fruit, is now death-producing. And contrary. In fact, uh, I remember reading, uh, it might have been in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire or something, I read years and years ago, how the conquering enemies many times would come through and salt their conquered enemies' fields. They'd salt their fields so nothing would grow. Scorched earth mentality. And so here's Jesus. Is, uh, he's not just saying it's useless. He's saying it's counterproductive now. This actually becomes life destroying. And so uh, it's a very interesting thought here. That uh, what was meant to bring forth life is now destroying. Okay? So again, we see this tension. We see this possibility. The kingdom of God has this very positive influence, uh, but there's this thing that is abortive in the process. There's this thing uh, that is contrary, that is working in the kingdom. Now remember, he's not attributing this to the kingdom. He's not saying the kingdom of God is destructive and negative. Uh, what he's saying is that in the kingdom of God, there's this reality. Has it, has it, ever, has it ever troubled you that, that uh, in Job, Satan is standing before God? That verse always troubles me. It's like, what's he doing there? He don't belong there. He, he, go to hell. <laughs> you do not belong here in heaven in the face of God. Right? But here's God. He's Apparently, this is all part of the flow. This is all part of the kingdom. This is the reality. God's not just saying, you know what? I've got this wonderful, blissful thing that I've got going here. He says, I'm dealing with the realities, the struggle between light and light. And darkness, the struggle between good and evil, and that thing goes on in perpetuity. It goes on and on and on and on. Okay, question, thoughts? Casey? The kingdom of God suffers violence or allows violence. Yeah, very good. Ultimately, we can only draw our conclusions about the kingdom of God from the word of God. So I was talking with a gal last night, and she had lots of great ideas about God. The only problem is none of them had anything to do with the Bible. And I had a very difficult time bringing her to grips with the fact that, you know what, you're just making this stuff up as you go along. If you don't have the Bible as your authoritative source, you don't, 
you don't have anything to gauge by. It's just what feels good to you. And killing six million Jews felt good to Hitler. But I thank God that that's not the kingdom. And I'm glad we can't just make this up as we go along. Dan. Okay. Daniel, living in Indianapolis, had fruit trees. Very, very good. Okay, Daniel says that his experience with producing fruit in Indianapolis was that it wasn't easy, and there were bugs that would come, and so their, uh, so their, uh, what do you call them? Eggs? Yeah, there's something else. Yeah, whatever they are. They lay their eggs in the, in the seed before the fruit actually even developed, and then as the fruit began to develop, in its very core, it had the bug infestation. And then another thing that he had to de- deal with was. Uh, what was the second one again? Uh, well, I was, huh? I was birds. birds, birds, birds. Thank you, birds. Those birds, oh, them birds. Them birds come and eat the fruit just when it's just in its fruition. Just these little tiny, you know, the possibilities are endless. And along comes a bird and it's done. Very good. Did you preach a sermon on this or something? But you're working on it. Okay. <laughs> He says you had to cover your trees. Okay? Just like you have to cover the church in prayer. This is good. This is, you want to come up here? It's going very well. And so these are great illustrations. This is what the kingdom of God is like. How many of you saw the paper yesterday at Florida with all of these uh, uh, different kinds of crops that are encased in ice in Florida? Bad news. I've got a plum tree in my front yard gives me plums about once well, lately because the weather's been favorable it's given, given me plums every year but uh, when I first moved in there the first three years we got nothing because every year right when the blossoms came out we got a freeze and it just wiped them out and it's, these wonderful white blossoms were all brown and I got nothing off it and so producing fruit by its very nature, we understand. We can look at this process and say, you know what? This isn't just uh, uh, all blissful peace. There's, there's a dynamic of conflict. You've got to fight to get fruit. And you've got to fight really hard to get fruit that's worth eating. <laughs> He's on a roll. You can overspray. That's good. Wonderful. You can overspray the fruit to where you put too much poison on them. I think that we got some oversprayers in this congregation. And you're trying so hard to protect the fruit that God can't get involved and you kill them. Because you never let the Holy Spirit do anything. You're going to straighten everybody out. You're going to tell them how to live. You're going to tell them what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right. Bad tie with that suit, brother. Brother, you know what? That cross on your neck, that'll send you straight to hell. So, 
come from Chicago. Can anything good come from Chicago? Okay, so you want to come to church? Let me tell you what you won't do. You won't go to the movies. You won't smoke. You won't drink. You won't cuss. You won't chew. You won't do anything that I don't do. Oversprayers. Some of you, we need to take your spray gun away from you. Say, no, you can't spray no poison. You go out and water. Okay? I want you to water the trees. I don't want you telling nobody about what they're not supposed to do. You just water. In fact, no, you don't water. You go sit in the barn and shut up. Okay, very, very good. Wayne. Okay, so ultimately we understand uh, this whole concept of the work ethic has its root in Protestantism. And uh, this has to do with the recognition that work is part of the kingdom. And that work is valuable and work is valid. And a man without work is soon a nut without work. Okay, and so there's this uh, dynamic, uh, Mike. Okay, so Mike's talking about the investment that we make, and uh, he cites the story of the Good Samaritan, which I, uh, I don't believe he addressed as a parable. Uh, it's a true story and uh, speaks of a dynamic in life where you have to make an investment. Let's get one more scripture, because uh, we've got a little bit of time. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. We talked about it last week, but this again draws this... Uh, uh, polarity into clarity. Uh, Adam, if you'll get that for us. It draws this polarity into view of the kingdom of God and the nature. What is the kingdom of God like? Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And somebody get me Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Uh, Mike Solano, get me that. Mike Solano. Okay, let's have Matthew 13, 24 and 30. Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, 
Okay, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went out, sowed his field. Uh, his servants went out later to examine the crop and found that there was tares growing up with the wheat. Went back to the master, said, uh, didn't you sow this field with good wheat and good seed? And he said, yeah, I did, but the, my enemy came at night and he sowed tares. He sowed weeds in amongst the wheat. And uh, so they said, well, you want us to go out there with our, with our overspray? And he said, no. <laughs> We'll leave them alone. They'll grow up together, and then I'll sort it out. All right? And so, but what I really want you to see there, I don't, we discussed that at length last week. I don't want to spend any time on it, but I want you to see this. this he says, this is the kingdom of God. That's what it's like. You're going to come into this harvest field. You're going to come into a dimension of conflict and opposition that is unavoidable. So this is why most churches won't get involved in the harvest. There's too much opposition. This is why most Christians won't get involved in the harvest. There's too much opposition. There's too much reproach. There's too many people that are putting you down for taking a stand for Jesus. There's too much opposition in culture. And so Jesus said, isn't that what the kingdom of God is? Yeah, but we don't like that. We don't want that to be the kingdom of God. And Matthew 13, 47 to 50. The kingdom of God is like a huge dragnet that was thrown into the sea. They drew it to shore, and then they began to sort out the good fish from the bad fish. And he says, so it will be in the end of times, God will come and he'll pull the wicked out from amongst the just. Very interesting statement. He says, I'll pull them out from amongst the just. That's where the wicked are. The wicked aren't all down on Whiskey Row. The wicked are in churches all over America. There's a few wicked here. It's not my business. I'm not going to walk out there, pat you on the shoulder and say, you're the wicked. I don't even know all the wicked. You know the wicked. You know your heart. You know what you're doing here. You know whether you're here to pick up on a chick or to let God minister to your heart. You know what you're about. You know who you're serving. Uh, Unless you're nuts. That's a whole other story. So we'll, we'll, we'll go somewhere that at a different time. But what I want you to see is this, uh, this dynamic. And he says, this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is like this dragnet that's very indiscriminate in what it pulls in. We're, we're out trying to win souls. And it's not our business to say, well, you, you're going to make it. You're not. Our business is to win souls. And to minister as best we can to people. And then God will sort it all out at the end. We don't even have to worry about it. Isn't that nice? Hallelujah. We're through. We're going to start a brand new video series called Undercover next week. I encourage every person here to be here and to get the word out to others to be here. Because this is a man that's completely unrelated to our fellowship. And he is saying things that we've preached for years with incredible clarity. And it's so refreshing to hear this coming from out there. Uh, and he's making waves with this study. And so I'd encourage you to be, be here for this video series starting next week.